Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. Lead us not unto temptation. Jose Nunez Romanes was a 19-year-old college student who had made a quick run to the bank in Albuquerque, New Mexico in the spring of 2020. While he was walking into the bank, something caught his eye. It was a clear plastic bag, and inside the bag was cash, a lot of cash. The bag contained $135,000 in $20 and $50 bills. He picked up the bag and called 911. A few minutes later, police arrived to take the money and sort out the situation. Nunez Romanis would later go on to say, it never passed through my mind to keep any of it. I think we can all agree that he did the right thing. Although, none of us have probably ever randomly found a bag with $135,000 in it. It could have been easy to make all sorts of justifications to try to keep the money. You could reason, I was just thinking about how much I could use an extra $135,000. <laughs> just speaking for myself, every day it's a hope that somehow some obscure millionaire relative who I don't even know about will just leave me money. Maybe a person could spiritualize it and think, Maybe God wanted me to find this money. There's no shortage of justifications we can make. In 1994, a California pastor named Francis Chan played in Cornerstone Church with 30 people. Chan is a compelling and creative speaker. People flocked to hear his sermons. And within 15 years, the church that Chan started had grown to 6,000 people. He'd written a best-selling book, Crazy Love. And though he'd made millions of dollars from his book sales, he'd given away most of his earnings. In 2010, Chan stepped down from the church feeling convicted that his preaching was actually becoming an unhealthy draw. In a world where consumer Christianity is far too popular, he looked at himself and asked if maybe he was part of the problem. So he dedicated himself to the house church movement and then traveled around the world serving and developing nations. It could have been easy to look at his power and feel a sense of pride and self-aggrandizement that he had earned it, that he was good, but instead, he walked away. In 1782, as the American Revolution was approaching its conclusion, General George Washington received a letter from a Continental Army colonel named Louis Nicola. In the letter, Nicola suggested that the general take on the title of king. It was a sentiment that other Americans shared. Washington did have an army at his disposal, Few people in human history 
have been in a position to seize power that Washington could have had, yet he turned it down. Money, success, power, three things have become strong temptations that have led to the downfalls of many. We all face temptations every day. And in our passage today, we see that Jesus Himself also faced temptations during His lifetime. It's a classic biblical passage where we see the Lord tempted three times by the devil. The main idea of our passage today is that a fallen world falls into temptation, but we have a Savior who did not. And our passage, as I mentioned, contains three scenes, and that'll form the outline for today's study. Before we get into our passage, I wanted to take just a brief aside and point out something in the Gospel of Matthew. This will hopefully help fill in some of the background for today's passage. As I said last week, Jesus fulfills the entire Old Testament, and everything Jesus does is fulfilling the Old Testament. There's not one story in the Gospel of Matthew that's just a nice story. There's a reason for everything that's happening in the ministry of Jesus. Now, in the Old Testament, there are numerous examples where people or places or events foreshadow Jesus and the gospel. It's not necessarily always prophetic, but there's things that you can look to in the Old Testament and see how Jesus brings the greater culmination or fulfillment to what had previously happened. In Matthew, there's a pretty strong emphasis on Jesus fulfilling the ministry of Moses. Already in this book, if you've been with us this entire time, we've seen some allusions between Jesus and Moses. Think about these for just a moment. Moses was the great leader of the Israelites who had led them from slavery in Egypt to the promised land. What happens when Jesus is born? His family is exiled and flees to Egypt in Matthew 2. But what happens next? Jesus, the new Moses, returns to Israel out of Egypt. I point that out because this week's passage is again, again pointing to this Moses-Jesus foreshadowing and fulfillment. Moses led the Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years. In today's passage, we see Jesus in the wilderness for 40 days. For the Israelites, they faced various trials in the wilderness they succumbed to grumbling and sin. Jesus is tempted during this time in the desert, yet does not sin. Jesus is tempted three times, and each time He will respond by quoting from the Old Testament, specifically from the books of Moses. And again, this idea will stick around in Matthew, but understanding it adds some depth to today's passage. Chapter 3, where we were last week, ends with Jesus getting baptized, the Holy Spirit descending, the Lord saying, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. And that leads us directly into chapter 4 and the first temptation, chapter 4, verse 1. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. These temptations are a divinely ordained ordeal. As I alluded to a moment ago, the fact that Jesus goes into the wilderness is reminiscent of Moses also going into the wilderness of the Israelites being in the desert, facing their own time of testing. The text tells us that Jesus is tempted by the devil. God does not tempt, but He does allow here for Jesus to be tempted, verse 2. 
After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. 40 days in the Bible is a common length of time for spiritually significant events. Not surprisingly, Jesus is hungry when he finishes his time in the desert. Jesus is a man. He feels hunger. 40 days is a lot of time to fast, but it's not supernatural. If someone is hydrated, it is possible for a person to last this amount of time without food. I wouldn't recommend it, but it can be done. Verse 3, And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. At this point in the temptation sequence, Jesus is not having his identity questioned. The devil does not call his sonship into doubt. But he's pointing to the power that Jesus has because he is the Son. If you're the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. The thing that's interesting and so practical about this temptation is how subtle it is. Is it really so bad to suggest that Jesus eat after fasting 40 days? But that's how temptation can so often work. The temptations we face are not typically to do things that are so explicitly wrong or evil. In the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, George Bailey, played by Jimmy Stewart, has established affordable housing for the residents of Bedford Falls. His rival in the movie is Mr. Potter, an unscrupulous slumlord. Potter offers George Bailey a job working for him managing his property. He says he'll pay George $20,000 a year, which in that day's money is over $360,000 today. So a lot of money. At first, George wants to think about the offer, but then he realizes what it would do to his tenants, and he storms off. Now, if George had taken the job, would that have been so overtly wrong of him to do? Again, sometimes temptations we face are not for things that are so explicitly sinful. The screw tape letters are one of the classic works of C.S. Lewis. And the plot of the screw tape letters is it's a work of fiction, and it's a series of letters from a senior demon named Screw Tape to his nephew, who's a demon in tra- training named Wormwood. The screw tape letters are a powerfully insightful work into our sinful nature and temptation. Quoting from the letters, Lewis says, The safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. For George Bailey, the temptation he faced was to turn his back on the people he was helping. In this first temptation of Christ, the temptation that Jesus faced was to be self-serving. But that wasn't the reason why He came into the world. Jesus came into the world to serve, to be meek and humble. He came into the world to exemplify sacrifice. Even the miracles that we see Jesus do in the Gospels, He doesn't do them for Himself. He does them for others. He's displaying His power and glory for the world, not simply doing magic tricks to show what He can do. All of us face subtle temptations every day to take our eyes off of God and to coast in our relationship with God. It's a slow fade. It's subtle compromises. It's getting a person further and further away from God's truth. Susanna Wesley was the mother of John Wesley, the great 18th century preacher who is credited as being the founder of Methodism. 
Another of her sons, Charles Wesley, was a famous songwriter, most famous for his popular Christmas song, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. I've always loved this quote from Susanna Wesley on sin. Whatever weakens your reason, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, takes off your relish for spiritual things, whatever increases the authority of the body over the mind, that thing is sin to you, however innocent it may seem in itself. In our passage, Jesus responds in verse 4, He answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Jesus responds to the devil's temptation by quoting Scripture. Specifically, it's a quote from Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. Grant Osborne's commentary is helpful here. In Deuteronomy 8.3, the Israelites are in their desert wanderings. The Lord has been sustaining them with manna, a type of bread. But even more significant than the food that sustained the body was that it was the Word of God which sustained the soul. Yet, the Israelites failed in the desert because a fallen world falls into temptation, but we have a Savior who does not. We see our second temptation, verses 5 and 6. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. In this second temptation, the devil is actually quoting from the Scriptures, specifically quoting from Psalm 91. And that's an important takeaway here. Just because someone has a Bible verse in what they're saying does not mean that they're right. There are a number of ways which people misuse and misquote the Bible. It's not always intentional. We can misuse the Bible when we take it out of context. I'll give this example. It's a popular verse. I apologize. Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans that I have for you, declares the Lord plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. For some of you, I'm sure that's probably your life verse. I don't have to take it away from you, but it's a verse that we have in our houses, on calendars, on cards that we give to high school and college graduates, on coffee mugs. We like this verse because it sounds like it's a verse for God saying everything's going to be okay always. It's not saying that. It's a verse written to the Israelites when they're in captivity to the Babylonians. So, I will say that if any of you have ever been in that situation, then it does apply to you. But it's a verse that's talking about God's future deliverance of His people. It's not an individual verse that, because work is really hard right now, that it'll be okay because God has a great plan for you. I think God does have a plan for His people, but specific to Jeremiah 29, 11, it's specifically talking collectively to the Israelites. So, it is a hopeful verse, but not in the way that people tend to want to read it, because we take it out of context. If we look at it just by itself, that's how it sounds. But that's why context matters in the Bible. It's important to study biblical texts in the way that the original audience would have understood them. That requires work, that requires study, but that's what teaches you God's Word. Some people misuse the Bible by picking and choosing the parts that they like. You do not get to be the Bible's editor. When we do that, we're putting ourselves on the throne. Things in the Bible we like, well, that's gospel truth. 
things in the Bible that we don't like or don't understand or can't explain, that's ignored. Some deliberately misuse or misquote the Bible, this is what the devil is doing here, to weaponize it, to suit themselves. Again, there's no shortage to the ways in which a fallen world can misconstrue the Word of God. And we see the devil misquote this passage. Looking again at the devil's quotation, he will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. It's a very nice verse. But the way that the devil is applying these verses is that if Jesus jumps from a high place, God will protect him. Neither these verses nor any verses in the Bible promise that God will bail people out for deliberately endangering themselves. There is no glory to God in acting foolishly. Reminds me of the, the story about the man where the flood came. Maybe some of you have heard this one before. Water started coming. A neighbor rode by on a boat and said, come quick, get in with me, I'll take you to safety. The guy said, no need, the Lord will protect me. The waters kept coming. He had to get to the second floor of his house. Another neighbor rode by in a boat, said, quick, get in the boat, I'll take you to safety. The guy said, no need, the Lord will protect me. The waters kept coming. Eventually, he had to get to the roof of his house. A helicopter flew overhead, dropped down a ladder, said, climb the ladder, we'll take you to safety. The guy said, no need, the Lord will protect me. And the waters kept coming, and eventually the man drowned. And when he was in heaven, he said, I had faith, I believed, why did you let me die? And the answer he got back was, I sent you two boats and a helicopter. In his response, Jesus quotes from Deuteronomy 6.16. In our passage, verse 7, Jesus said to him, again it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. He doesn't even object to the devil's quotation. He just responds correctly with Scripture. His response shows why the devil is wrong rather than him just saying you're wrong. In the Old Testament, the Israelites were in a time of need and they grumbled. They made demands of God. Jesus is the greater Israel who does not. I mentioned in the beginning that Moses points to Jesus. Israel also points to Jesus. The Israelites had failed to trust the Lord. Jesus does not fail. Jesus is the greater Israel who does not succumb to complaining. The first temptation asks Jesus to use his power for a selfish purpose. The second temptation asks him to presume upon God's power for a selfish purpose. We come to our third temptation, verses 8 through 11. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. The devil makes a promise to Jesus. He says he will give him all the kingdoms of the world if Jesus will fall down and worship him. You might wonder how the devil could make that offer to Jesus. Simple. He's lying. He's trying to offer the crown without the cross, but that will not do. It is not the divine plan. Jesus has yet to officially begin His public ministry, but throughout His ministry, He has a singular focus on the cross and what must be done. In Matthew 16, Jesus tells His disciples that He must suffer many things and die. They don't fully comprehend what He's saying, 
Peter actually rebukes Jesus for saying such a thing. But in Matthew 16, 23, Jesus says to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. At this third temptation, Jesus again responds by quoting from the Old Testament. Be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. Jesus here dismisses the devil. At the end of the age, Jesus will cast out the devil in eternity. The devil is a complicated subject in Christianity, but throughout the Bible there are references to the devil. Throughout the Gospels, we see him as this adversary to Jesus. I've always thought this quote from C.S. Lewis is helpful. There are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. I think that's an important observation. To some, the idea of the devil can seem almost absurd or mythological. To others, every bad thing that happens is because of a demonic influence. To the first group, I would say, look at the world. To the second group, it goes too far. I would argue that the Bible still points to the devil having influence in our world today. But we ourselves are also fallen and sinful. For some of us, the devil doesn't need to put us under spiritual attack. We do a good enough job of that on our own. Yet the things he represents are also on the prowl in this world. They're the same things we see in our passage today. Temptations to compromise, to distort the truth, to put ourselves on the throne instead of God. We all have times where we give into temptation, not condoning sin, I'm just saying what the reality is. We are fallen, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. But the good news is that we have a Savior who did not. He would go on to be betrayed by those who fell into temptation. Judas was tempted by greed, gave up Jesus to the ruling authorities. The ruling authorities were tempted by their love for their own power and were willing to even lie to seek Jesus' crucifixion. In the Lord's Prayer, Jesus taught us to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. But He's the only one who perfectly followed that. He's the one who Himself was delivered up to evil for our righteousness. One of the things that's so striking about this passage is that Jesus does not actually do anything supernatural here. Even the fasting for 40 days, that's physically possible to do. He isn't working miracles here. Rather, He is taking the Word of God and combating falsity with truth, something that we are all capable of doing. We all face temptation. We all also have the Word of God. 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. What a great promise we have from God's Word, that we are never bound to sin. And I get that some temptations can be greater, especially when it's an area of sin that we've battled, where we've struggled, where we've already given in many times. The areas of sin that we deal with from person to person may vary, but the reality of our temptation to sin is universal. 
No matter how mature you are, no matter how godly you are, no one ever gets to a place where they are above temptation. Jesus Himself wasn't. The reason we allow ourselves to fall into temptation is because we want to. For most of us, there is no greater enabler to our sinful behaviors than ourselves because there's no shortage of excuses we can make. We can misuse the Bible. We can try to explain away why something doesn't apply to us. We can look at an area of sin and convince ourselves that we deserve it or that it's not that big of a deal. We can make excuses. We can co-opt God's grace and say, yes, this is a sin, but God will forgive me, and all sorts of other games that we play. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. We have a Savior who points to something greater. My main takeaway as I close is not, don't give in to temptation. You shouldn't, but let me give you a reason. How do we look at temptation? How do we look at the things that God wants us to do? Do we look at our temptation as trying to just force ourselves not to do something we think we shouldn't do? Sometimes that might be necessary. But if that's our approach to every vice we have, that will lead to a joyless walk with God. If we're thinking of sin as, this is good, this would be better, but I'm not going to do it because I'm not supposed to do it. And so I use two stories from Greek mythology, stories which I think illustrate the concept between temptation to sin and the way of God. The Greeks believed in these human-like creatures called the sirens who sang a beautiful song that when sailors heard it, they would be drawn in by the siren song and ultimately crash their boats on the rocks and die. In Homer's Odyssey, Odysseus desperately wants to hear the siren song, but he doesn't want to die. And so he concocts a plan where he has his men put wax in their ears while they tie Odysseus to the mast of his ship so that he can hear the song but not fall into the temptation. That's the heart behind what we do when we try to force ourselves not to fall into sin. And again, sometimes that might be what we have to do. But there's another story from Greek mythology, Jason and the Argonauts. And in that story, there's this mythical musician named Orpheus who plays the the pan flute. And in that story, the siren song is heard, but Orpheus drowns it out with an even more beautiful song. That's how we battle temptation, is to know that God has the more beautiful song, that God's way is the better way, and to desire to live for that instead of for the ways of the flesh. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank You that we have a Savior who did not fall into sin. Lord, we have an example of someone who overcame temptation. And Lord, for all of us, there are so many different ways so many different patterns and habits of sin that have been worn into our own lives. Lord, may we glorify You. Lord, may we look to sin and see it for what it is, things that are meant to distort, to take us away from You, to point us away from You, to rob You of glory. Lord, may we instead set the ears of our hearts to the more beautiful song. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.